And thank you very much for tuning in to another episode of In the Sheds on Code with Kingy, where for today's show we are joined by the original All Blacks media officer and brains behind the notable sports shows Sports Cafe and Crowd Goes Wild, Rick Salizzo. Now this conversation begins with how the De La Salle old boy first started off in the journalism industry, before then delving into some of the work he did alongside the All Blacks, and then finally in the TV space. Now I've been very fortunate to have a number of guests on my show so far and if you do happen to be listening I again extend to you a very big thank you for taking the time out but I do have to say that this was by far my favourite interview to date. Being a self-confessed rugby geek I do have to admit that I got pretty aroused at times listening to some of the stories that Rick was passing on and so again without giving too much away I hope that you guys enjoy them just as much as I did in the moment. Here you go. Well, first of all, how have you been in isolation? So um, I was actually overseas. So I uh, came back from the US um, about oh, six weeks ago now. And um, I am in uh, the Coromandel, which is beautiful. Uh, although being across the road from a beach and not being able to surf has been an interesting challenge. <laughs> but um, the next level of lockdown, we're allowed to surf apparently. So that's, that's something to look forward to. Dang, yeah, for sure. So you were over in the States when that all, this whole COVID-19 thing breaks out. So did you get an early jump on it? Yeah, I'd been in Texas and then I was actually sort of just up in New York, actually, just visiting some people. And I was in a hotel and my son lives in Europe and, and, and I've got a lot of friends and family in Northern Italy and uh, I could see what was happening there. And I just woke up one night and I went, you know what, I've got to get out of here because the city's going to go on lockdown and I can't lock myself in a hotel for sort of two to three months. So just literally um, rang in New Zealand up in the middle of the night, jumped in the cab in the morning and went to the airport and flew straight home. So uh, I got in just after the, uh, after the deadline. So I had to sort of do my two weeks of self-isolation, but I was going to do that anyway. You know, I just wanted to make sure everything was cool. And, um, and I did my two weeks of isolation and then the country went into lockdown. So I had another sort of four or five weeks. I guess back in your gut really paid off. So have yeah, you got your safe and sound. It was funny because um, I was just one of the motivations was I was watching this. I was just checking Twitter and uh, Lucy Lawless posted something about, and she was in Vegas at the time, and she was like, "You know what? Don't be scared of being the first rat off the sinking ship." <laughs> and I thought that's a great piece of advice. I'm out of here. Yeah. Uh, why don't we start things off with where you grew up and where your love from rugby started? Yeah, it's a good question, actually. So I, uh, I grew up in South Auckland, uh, Manarewa first, and then I moved to uh, Māori. And because my dad was Italian, and, uh, and particularly when I lived in Manarewa, actually, is that uh, I was a soccer player and, um, and played soccer right through till I was probably 15, something like that, and I was in the first 11 at De La Salle College, and I realised that no one cared. <laughs> we were, we had a really good soccer team, and I loved it, and, uh, but, and we were winning all our games, and I was in the first 11 really young, and stuff like that, and, and no one cared, but the first 15 
they were treated like gods and they got free jerseys and free bags and they were on the stage of assembly every week and I thought, yeah, I wouldn't mind hanging out with those guys. So I just um, I just switched to rugby, I don't know, it must have been Form 4, something like that, Form 4, Form 5. And I, because I was a soccer player, I mean, back then, I mean, this because I'm old, it was the time where transition went from people kicking uh, kicking goals from Tohak to around the corner. And because I was a soccer player, I could kick the ball. So so I was sort of managed to get in all the teams because I was a goal kicker. So uh, even though I was playing at number eight. So, yeah, I, and I, you know, and then, and then from then on, I just played rugby, you know, played the first 15 and played club and all that sort of stuff. So... That was yeah, but it was basically just because I just wanted the free bag and the free jersey. <laughs> and you also struck up a quite a close friendship with John Kirwan. Yeah, well, well, so when I was in form seven and he was in form five, I was um, I was the prefect in charge of the form fives, and uh, I remember he came up to me and introduced himself. And by that stage, I'd been in the first team for a while, and, and he came up and said, look, I'm going to have a crack at the first team this year. And I was like, oh, yeah, good on you, mate, you know. And his best mate, his best mate's brother had played with me previously. And I was like, oh, yeah, you, you know, uh, Brendan O'Connor, he's, he's going to be great. He'll get in. You should come along with Brendan and see how you go. Not really thinking that he had a chance. and uh, But he made the team. So I was number eight, and he was halfback. And I quite often used to go with him and his dad to the games. And so, yeah, we, we had a friendship. The, the only thing is that there was one game where I uh, kicked particularly badly and and he took over the kicking. And, like, if you've ever seen him kick a rugby ball, you realise that's the greatest insult of all time, to have John Kerwin replace you as a goal kicker. And he reminds me of it often. But we did get one game, actually, when we played Northcote College and they had Terry Wright in the team. And it was a shitty day, muddy, windy and stuff. And the coach said at the beginning of the game, right, I uh, read through the team and he said, okay, today, Kerwin, you can take the easy shots at goal and Salizzo, you can take the hard ones. <laughs> so that's how we started our relationship. and We've annoyed each other ever since. Oh, yeah. Oh, we'll get to um, his influence in your career later. But I read that you also set out to be prime minister before you ever had any hopes of like becoming yeah. who you are now. So what changed from you wanting to be a prime minister and then going to journalism school? Well, that's, that's funny. I can remember writing that, actually. I think um, my family were pretty political, um, my mum's side, and uh, my, my great-grandfather was the leader of the uh, unemployed during the Depression and uh, was arrested uh, for starting the riots in Queen Street. That was my great-grandfather. My grandfather was the deputy mayor of Manukau City. So I did have a, um, I did have a strong political sort of family. I think I probably said that just because I, um, I, just, I just like being in charge. I don't think uh, realistically it was ever an opportunity uh, for me. And then when I left school, I mean, I wasn't... Uh, let's say the best way of describing me at school was high-spirited. I wasn't particularly the best-behaved kid of all time. So... I didn't know what I was going to do, and I got, a, I got, I so I applied for everything, and I got uh, accepted into journalism school. And back then, um, it was a hard thing to get into. You know, there was like four hundred applicants for twenty odd places, and I thought, yeah, if, if if I can get into it, I'll I'll go. And so I just signed up. You touch on how it wasn't all for you, and like sort of the conventional way of delivering news. But one of your first assignments was the Springbok Tour in '81. 
Look, I, I actually did have a decent career as a journalist, and I did love being a journalist. Um, and I still put journalists down on my um, airport card when I'm going into a country. I did okay at journalism school, but I just had the misfortune of being arrested in my first week at a cricket game. So, as I say, that high-spiritedness probably led me astray a little bit. And so it wasn't so much that I didn't achieve okay in my exams and everything. I was just a little bit badly behaved. So, and, and you know, like most guys are at 18, 19 years old. So it probably took me a while to settle down. But I really enjoyed I worked in radio for about... I uh, must have been about five years. Um, I worked primarily, I did four or five years in New Zealand radio, and then I did two years uh, running a, a news agency in London. So I think, I mean, I've created this sort of, you know, larrikin myth, but I think being a journalist was something that's really important to me, and I'm really proud of the work I did as a journalist. And I did a lot of investigative stuff, a lot of crime stuff, and, uh, and that's something I really was proud of. But when I started, I mean, literally the week after I got out of journalism school, I, uh, <laughs> the Springboks arrived. And uh, that was my first sort of... Um, and, I, and, I, and I probably uh, covered it more as a news journalist than a sports journalist, to be honest. So I was, you know, 17, 18, I remember. Um, 18 probably being down at the, the game in the Waikato when the uh, game was called off. I was there. I was at the third test in Eden Park. I was at the airport when they arrived. So I just did all this stuff in the northern region. So you go in, because I'm, I'm, the reason why I sort of reached out to you and was drawn to you is that, you know, obviously I'm a, I'm a big sports dude, but I started off as a journalist as well. So yeah. I was really interested in, in learning sort of your journey or your pathway to where you ended up. But so you cover the, the Springbok tour and you spend a bit of time, like you said, over in Italy, over in London, and then spend a bit of time at TVNZ when you come back to New Zealand but yeah sort of the the big break for you was the good the bad and the rugby so yeah. how did you form past productions and was it John's idea was it your idea uh, it was sort of like a, so I did um, a number of years when I came back from London I worked for TVNZ as a journalist and I worked predominantly as a news journalist but then uh, when the 87 World Cup came around I suggested to them that they should have a full-time rugby journalist because up at that stage they didn't, and so I did all the games and the all the All Black games in the Rugby World Cup, and that was really where I transitioned from being a a, a news journo to a sports journo, um, because up until that stage I hadn't wanted to be a sports journo because I was still playing rugby and I, I wanted to play on Saturdays I didn't want to cover it, but then as I got more into it that sort of became less and less likely so. Yeah, I, I think when I remember I gave JK because I did the World Cup and then I did the Australian tour in 1988 and I just cut all my offcuts from my stories and gave them to JK as a bit of a gift, you know, and just as a bit of a behind the scenes, some of the stuff I hadn't used. And uh, he said we should do a video. So so I thought it was a good idea. So we, I, I was covering the 89 tour of Wales and Ireland as a as a journo for TVNZ and again I just sort of shot a bit extra when I was doing news stories and when I got back I cut it into a video which was the good the bad the rugby and we had no idea we had no idea what we were doing and like I didn't even give it a duration I just put everything in there that I had I think it ran for two and a half hours or something <laughs> it's like something crazy you know so um, and it sold really well and, and we did it was at a time where there was no sell through video market there was only like three titles there was Snapper Secrets, 
a cooking video and us. So, and we did, I don't know, 120,000 copies or something. So after that, I did Blood, Sweat and Touring, which was the next one. And then when I finished shooting that in France, I had a holiday in, J in Italy with JK. And I got a call from TVNZ basically saying that they uh, had decided not to renew my contract um, as a journo. And I thought, well, that's cool, because I'd actually tried to resign. And they said, don't resign. But when I, when I finished the tour, they decided, and it was a nice... And a nice thing they just said look you know what we think this is the best thing for you is to go out on your own and do your own thing so uh so it wasn't so much a decision but something that someone else suggested quite strongly to me and uh i was staying with jk and we went oh let's form a company let's just make some stuff together so um so sort of pasta productions came after good the bad and the rugby you know so we we did a few things together with pasta for me, like when I first watched it, because my old man introduced it to me, because I'm only born in '97, so it's well yeah. before my time. But what I love about it is just how candid, and just the, the behind-the-scenes footage. And you gave, let me make sense of this. One of the things that I'm, I guess, passionate about is sort of through this podcast is just providing a human element to the guys yeah. that I interview, particularly with yeah. these rugby players. And I think a lot of the time they get put on this pedestal and they're made to look like being something other than a human being. And when I watch that, it's just like, these guys are having jokes and they're playing around and they're just really good at you know, throwing a ball around. That's the only difference yeah. between them and a normal human being. And so I guess my question from this is, why haven't we seen something similar to what you've put together with how the game's gone on? Because it's not like we don't have the resources or is it more so the, the media tightness that's around the professional game now? Uh, no, it's a, it was a different time. You've got to remember, so I was still probably playing so 89 i was probably still playing club rugby back then you know i played at marist and um and so you know there were probably three four five marist players on the side and uh you know i knew the guys from varsity and i'd also played at north shore so i knew buck and frano so you know all blacks back then were club rugby players first and foremost so we all knew each other you know from the scene but i think when i was watching it the other day i think one of the fundamental differences is Nowadays, with social media, everyone is sort of like their own TV star. So everyone is used to performing for the camera. Whereas when we shot those things, they were very much fly on the wall. So they people were just being themselves and we just captured it. So there was very, very little playing to camera. They just trusted me and my cameraman to capture what they were doing normally. So what they did on The Good, The Bad and The Rugby was what they would have been doing if the camera wasn't there. And... That's just a different time in society. Now we've got cameras that surround us. I mean, you know, I've got a computer in front of me, I've got two phones in front of me, um, and an iPad. They're all they're all cameras, and I could all perform for them. And 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 I can put it on Instagram and Facebook, and I could be a star, you know, if I was good enough. Yeah. But back then, the only people that had cameras were people that would spend 150 grand to buy one. So people were just relaxed, being themselves, and we captured it. And I, I just always treated it like. You know, these guys were used to having me around. They were just rugby players like I was, you know. They just happened to be slightly better at it than me. <laughs> Quite a bit better, you know. It was funny because I remember the first time when I was like 21, uh, playing under 21s, because third grade used to be a really big grade in rugby in Auckland. Mm -hmm. And um, I was marking, the first time I ever met Zinzan Brook, I was marking him. And he beat me to a pulp. And I remember walking away going, 
Yeah, I don't think I'm ever going to be an All Black. I think I think that guy. I think that guy's <laughs> probably got more chance than I have because he's like three years younger than me and like ten times better. So um, that was it. Was good for me to work that out at a young age. So it took a lot of the pressure off. Yeah, I guess like the thing for me is is like we saw that All Black documentary that was put together by Amazon during the Lions tour, but. Yeah. Like you said, because these guys have had so many cameras in their face, it's almost like it's all staged. Whereas with your docos that you did, or you know, behind the scenes footage, you know, these guys are just being themselves, and you, yeah, you can't really replicate that. You can you can sort of tell when a guy gets in front of a camera whether or not he's actually playing to a crowd or whether he's actually being candid. And it's just a different time, you know. Yeah. It's like. Um... As I say, I mean, I, I would quite often come down to the lobby to meet my crew and they'd be gone and the players would say, we're going to play golf. We took the camera with us. I think one of the big differences is our video was very much driven by the team. So the rugby union didn't actually really know much about it until we'd done it. Yeah. So it was really from the team up. And I think that was one of the secrets to it. You know, and we had a very small crew. We only had um, one one cameraman, one soundie and me. So, you know, because we could get away with it back then. Um, I'd imagine when the, the, the Amazon thing, I'd imagine they'd have more people. I mean, the All Blacks have more people, you know. So, I mean, back then it was like one bus and, and us and a little van following behind. Now, I mean, the All Blacks need two buses. So it's just a different time. Yeah, yeah, I guess it's a weird one for me because like, I look back at it now and it looks just like so much more fun. And I understand that you know the game wasn't professional. There wasn't as much of the media scrutiny as there is now. But yeah, so you, you make these behind-the-scenes videos and then eventually you get offered the role of being the All Blacks media officer in the middle of the night. And on yeah. top of that, because you didn't answer the question when you explained it, but why did Laurie Maines hate you? Uh, so Laurie... And, and Laurie had every right to be grumpy with me because I'd done a story. So before Auckland were a great team in the 80s, they, they played a game against Wellington and they beat them by 50 points. And I, I, I decided to do a story, and I was obviously pretty biased because I was an Aucklander, but I decided to do a story going, could this Auckland team be one of the greatest teams of all time? And um, this was really early in their, uh, in their uh, sort of shield reign. And I needed to find someone that didn't like them. And so I got the guy in the South Island to interview Laurie Maines because I knew that he wasn't a fan. Um, and I didn't know Laurie. And they sent back the interview and, and Laurie actually, in, a, in his defence, was really complimentary about the way Auckland played and he was like, you know, and he, and, he, and he said lots of really nice things. And then right at the end of the interview, he sort of went, you know, but who knows what's going to happen? Every dog has its day. But at the end of the day, it's Auckland's day at the moment and they're doing bloody well. And I just took that one little grab that said every dog has its day and used it in my story, which is like, you know, when I look back at it, I'm not something I'm particularly proud of. But it, it made a good clip for my story, but it wasn't an actual, accurate summary of what he was saying. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't happy and he made it pretty clear that he wasn't happy. So <laughs> because I'm a pain in the neck, about two years later or maybe the next year, Otago were coming up to play Auckland in the Shield Challenge and he put a media ban on himself because he knew that he might say something to fire them up. So I decided to, to get the clip that he hated and I put it up on the big screen at Eden Park and did a piece of camera going, well, Laurie Maines doesn't say anything, but he said enough in the past that he doesn't need to say anything now. And I played that clip 
Oh my God, he was not happy. And again, completely justified. You know, what I did was, was out of line. And then, <laughs> so that must have been, I don't know, 91, 90, something like that. And then he gets made all black coach. And I'm like, oh no. <laughs> like, he would, uh, he would uh, like walk out of the room if I was in the room. You know, he really, we just, and I, and I, as I say, completely justifiable. And then the, the All Blacks were in Australia on their way to South Africa and they did a tour of Australia first and, and they were copying a little bit in the media. And I got summons to the manager's room at like 1.30 in the morning and they knew where to find me. I was in the house bar. And they said, look, we want you to be our media officer because I'd, I'd actually done a paper for them about they needed to do something about the media and this is how they should do it. And so they said, you know, we like what you wrote. We'd like you to take the job on starting tomorrow morning. So I was, oh, yeah, sure. So then the next morning the guys were going to practice and I said to Fitzy, I said, what do I do, you know? Um, do I meet you there or something? He said, no, no, you're part of the team now. So you jump on the bus with me and sit next to me and we're going to practice. And I jumped on the bus and Laurie turned around and they said, what's that prick doing on the bus? And no one had told him. <laughs> so next thing, the manager and the coach walk about 50 metres up the road and I see all these arms being thrown around. <laughs> like, oh my God, everyone was bright red. And then he came back, sat down, nothing was said. And it's fair to say that Laurie, Laurie basically said to me something along the lines, look, I'm going to give you a second chance, but one chance. And it's fair to say he put me through my paces. You know, he challenged me a lot. And if I said to him, stand over there, he'd stand another place. And I said to Fitzy and, and JK, I said, what do I do? And they said, look, it's really simple. You just keep doing a great job day after day and you don't let it get to you and he'll come around. And it was great advice. And, you know, in the end, Laurie came around up the time and, and him and I worked really well together. And, and I really enjoyed uh, my time working with the All Blacks. Um, not to say there weren't a lot of challenges. But I enjoyed those challenges and uh, it was a really challenging environment. And if anyone showed any weakness, they were jumped on. And so I had to make sure that every time I was tested by Laurie or by whoever, that I dealt with that test and showed no weakness and got on with it. And um, I remember one time trying to take two players who will remain nameless, but their names might have been Robin Brook and Frank Barnes. And uh, I was in the elevator taking them to a live cross for home. So we had like half an hour. And they got out of the lift and they both said to me, uh, no, we're not going to do this now. We're going to go shopping. And I'm like, well, you've got to do it. And they go, well, if we don't show up, you're the one that's going to look like a dick. And I'm like, well, you've got to, you, you can't. <laughs> you, we've, we've told them that you're going to be there. So you've got to be there. And they're like, no, no, we're going shopping. So it ended up being like a physical shoving match. Them trying to get out the door and me pushing them towards the interview. And, uh, and I got them there and they did it. And Holmes was like, this is fantastic, thanks so much. But it wasn't anything nasty. They were just testing me. They were just challenging me to see if I could deal with it. And uh, and I had to. Crazy. Well, I mean, you, you talk about your Zin Sandbrook story. Maybe you were a lot tougher than you thought you were. So maybe you get your friend bugs. <laughs> no, really just, just stubborn, I think. So, mm. you know, it's look, I, look, and there was plenty of physical challenges. Trust me. They, uh, we had one training, we were in uh, Italy and um, Josh Cromfeld had an injured ankle and he asked me to walk around the field with him just to keep him company while he was sort of trying to get it right. And then he said, I want to test it out. Let's do a couple of sprints. 
So we did a couple of sprints, and Fitzy was with the reserves. It was a, he wasn't playing in this particular game, and 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 Sean yelled out, "If you can train with him, you can come and train with us." And I said, "No, mate, I'm I'm fine." And he said, "Mate, I'm the captain. Get over here." So next minute, I'm doing the grids with the players, and you know it's fair to say I wasn't the fittest man in the world at the time. And we did these grids for sort of like 20 minutes or whatever, and uh, it just about killed me. And then Laurie called over to Sean for the reserves to come in and run the post team at training. And I thought, oh, thank God, you know. And so they all ran off. And then Sean said, what are you doing? I said, well, you've oh, got no training. And he said, no, no, mate, you're you're part of it. So so like two minutes later, I'm locking, a, I'm going down in the scrum, locking up with, um, with Jonah, it was. Jonah and I were the locks. And the first scrum we put down, again, Rob came through with a beautiful uppercut, got me flush on the chin. And then everyone took off and I was just left standing there. And we did we did this team training. And like, you know, it, I, I was dead before training. By the end of training, I just couldn't move. And as we were walking back from training, Laurie Maines turned to Fitzy and said, um, what's, the, uh, what's the correct uh, training gear, Sean? He said, uh, rugby jersey and, uh, and rugby shorts, uh, Laurie. And they, they said, you wouldn't wear a T-shirt, would you? And they went, no, no, I wouldn't wear a T-shirt. And they looked at me and I was a cool wearing a T-shirt. And so they lined up the All Blacks in a gauntlet and uh, made me do some down and ups, which I think I only did like two or three before um, I completely lost my call and tried to kill Frank Bunt. So, um, yeah, it was, as I say, it was a challenging environment. And uh, when they had the opportunity to put you under the blowtorch, they did. It's unbelievable. But that's almost like something I'd love to be a part of, but hearing your end of it, maybe not so much. <laughs> no, no, nothing, there was nothing fun about it at all. I mean, oh. the other thing I remember about, it might have been the same tour actually, is we were touring France and, um, you know, when they say media liaison officer, you basically had to do everything. And they were touring France and... Um, <clears throat> We were trying to play a fast game, and so what the French were doing to slow it down was that they weren't give, supplying any ball boys to the games. So if the ball was kicked out, you had to go and get it off the crowd. So we decided that we were going to get the reserves to be the ball boys, and I, I became head ball boy. So um, I had to organise the reserves and uh, put them in the right place to be the ball boy, and I was one of the ball boys as well. You know, and I, I could still see Fitzy's face yelling at me to get the ball to him quicker so he could throw it in. And where's your towel? You know, wipe the ball, you idiot. You know, it's like so. Yeah, it was a. I, I really enjoyed that because it was. Um, I really enjoyed that that time in the All Blacks because it was fun. You know, it was it was just a different time, and you know, I had nothing but the utmost respect for the guys, for the players. I mean, they were just. You know, I think one of the reasons we really liked those, I was watching the 96 game against South Africa the other day, and I think one of the reasons we really liked those times is because they looked like us, you know? They were just us, but they were playing rugby for, for our country, you know? Um, because they had jobs, and, and they weren't, like, full-time in the gym, and, you know, so they were really they were really accessible as players, you know? And, and they might have played for your local club, and you might have seen them around, and... You know, and and that you know, and and that was a great time. It was. I, I feel very fortunate to have been on the fringes. Now I have to ask you because my dad's favourite player is Jonah, and yep. you oversaw his meteoric rise at the yep. 1995 World Cup. Can you sort of 
maybe sort of run us through a little bit of that experience and just sort of put into layman's terms like what actually happened in like the space of three months? Oh, 24 hours. So the day before we were due to play Ireland, I brought them down to the hotel lobby to talk to the media and no one showed up, not a single person. And him and I were sort of left there standing awkwardly. And he said, I thought you were, I thought you wanted me to talk to the press. I said, yeah, I did, but no one wants to talk to you. So um, he went back to his room and I went to the bar. But um, the next day, that night, he destroyed Ireland. And uh, from that moment on, it was like having one of the Beatles in our camp. Um, it was just phenomenal. You know, everywhere we went, he was mobbed. Um, the media were just swamping him with requests, you know, from all over the world. And uh, it was a real, uh, you know, and, and, and Jonah was, like, he always looked slightly bewildered with it, but he was really good at the way he handled it. He just sort of just, you know, just did his own thing. And, and yeah, such a good man. And uh, I've never seen anything like it before or afterwards. No, nothing like it, nothing close. The The sort of, because the thing about Jonah is, you know, if you're a rugby fan, you could appreciate how good he was. But if you knew nothing about rugby, seeing someone that big and fast run through people, you just stood there in awe. And, uh, you know, I mean, I remember getting a call from the Dallas Cowboys about him, you know. I mean, just, just I actually had two phones at that World Cup, one phone for the media and one phone for Jonah. So all the Jonah requests had his own phone. On that point of obviously like the, the media back then and if we compare it to nowadays, do you think that from your experience that the players from your time would have been able to handle the, the media scrutiny that they're under now? That's a really good question. I've never been asked that before. Wow. I mean, they were all pretty smart guys back then and, and they knew the game. I think they would have been frustrated by... I mean, we had a much smaller group of media, so there were more personal relationships, I suppose, you know, because I think one of the things back then is if you're in the media, you saw it as one of your jobs to make sure you went to all the trainings and stuff like that, whether it was provincial or uh, All Blacks or whatever. And so they got used to seeing the media around and they, they got to know them. And some guys, like Joe Stanley never spoke to the media. That was his thing. And everyone respected that. Ollie Brown was the same. Inga would sort of sit down and have a cup of tea with them. You know, he really enjoyed the interaction with them. So I think they they would have worked it out. I mean, you just got to look at guys like JK and Fitzy now, how good they are dealing with the media. I mean, you know, poor JK. I mean, he's been dealing with the media since he was 18 years old. So there's just more of them now. So, yeah, it's probably more the social media Scrutiny that's harder, you know, if you're out having a beer, there's always like 35 people there that are ready to take a shot of you on their phones if you're doing something wrong. So I think that would be harder. Like, honestly, I thought of the other day, I thought, oh, man, look at that surf. I should just jump in the surf. And I thought, you know what? All it would take would be one person <laughs> take a photo of me on their phone and I'd be in the shit. So, you know, best not. So uh, And plus it was the wrong thing to do. But I think that scrutiny is hard. I think that scrutiny is hard for all our sports people and, and people with high profile, you know, that, that just means that they become, you know, probably a bit more, a bit closed off a little bit more. And, and, and you know, they, if, if you're under that scrutiny all the time, you probably wear a mask a bit more, you know, you don't want to really reveal your true self in public. And that's just the way of the world now. And that's probably a bit sad. 
I was about to say, I, I commend you for making that decision not to go surfing, and I wish yeah. that David Clark had thought the same. We yeah. decided to go mountain biking. Yeah, but I'm not that pure because I didn't think about it. Ah, <laughs> oh, right. So you finish up with the All Blacks, and then you pretty much jump into Sports Cafe. Yeah. And I've heard a little bit about sort of the reasoning behind it, but maybe talk us through that, and then I'll have a follow-up question when, you, when you're done answering that one. So what went into so, Sports Cafe? Again, it came from conversations with JK and, and stuff, and we're just talking about a bit like you know when you're doing media stuff, it's hard to be yourself. Um, and why don't we do a show where it's just really the players talking to each other from different sports? That was the basic idea, and originally it was supposed to be JK, myself, and Zinni, and then um, and JK couldn't make the pilot because he was working. He was with the Warriors and he was doing a, a Super League meetings and stuff. So the only Warrior that I knew was Mark Ellis. Um, and so I rang Macker up and asked him to fill in on the pilot. And he was, yeah, he was just Macker. And I knew what he was like because when he was in the All Blacks, he used to sit behind me on the bus and he used to just both drive me up the wall and make me laugh the whole time. So um, I knew what I was getting. And, and when he did the pilot, it just clicked and uh and jk was busy for the first six weeks and and you know 13 14 years later i still have macca there so um uh it was it's not like i'm a genius at casting i just it just like it just fell fell on the stage um and uh and then he he asked me one day he said oh we should get lana cocroft on you know and because uh, i was going to do a story with her for this other show but it never happened and i ended up being on a ice cave by myself and I thought I was going to be an ice cave with Lana Cocroft. So we got Lana on board and, and again, we just such a natural chemistry between the group and and we had so much fun. And then, you know, JK came back on when Zinni was away and, and, and then when Zinni left, we had Eric Rush and, you know, it was just really cool. It was a really, <clears throat> really fun show because it was just a group of friends talking to sports people and we, we had so much fun. And even though the show is finished, I mean, we still catch up and meet and the show still exists. It just doesn't go on TV. Yeah. Now, looking back, and I'm not even sure if Mark's going to ever hear this, but are you thankful in a way that JK didn't turn up to that pilot and that ah. you had to get Macca to fill in? Oh, look, you know, Macca was fundamental to the direction that, um, that Sports Cafe went in. I mean, you know, a lot of it was about that clash between him and me, you know, me trying to do a show and him trying to ruin it. And it would have been different with JK, but, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, it would have been just with JK, me and Zinni, I probably would have still copped a bit of shit, but I mean, Mac is just good fun. And, and, uh, as I say, I, I don't question these things. I just accept them and move on. And, uh, and it worked out quite well, didn't it? Yes, for sure. But I mean, you, you admit that you think that you didn't have that great of casting skills, but to your credit, I mean, the likes of Lee Hart, like you said, Mark Ellis, Zin Zambrook, Eric Rush. And I was re-watching the Oz Files last night. Oh, and right. like, every time he retold his movie idea, like, I lost the pot. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's like you have to give yourself some sort of credit because like these people don't just fall onto your lap. Like, you have to have some sort of understanding of what they're like and how charismatic they are. But do you ever like take some time and reflect on like maybe like you do a bit more praise for all of these media careers that have sort of taken off, like thanks to Sports Cafe and the like? I don't, you know what, I think, uh, I think for anything you do, it's how you, it's, you, you don't really look for external praise, you know, um, 
I'm just really proud of a lot of what we've done and uh, and a lot of the people that I've worked with and given the opportunity to have TV careers and stuff like that. I'm really proud of it. But I don't need people telling me that it's good or bad, you know. It's just something that gives you a really deep feeling of pride. You know, I did a, a thing on the All Blacks Facebook page when I with Good, the Bad and the Rugby the other day and I watched it and I thought, yeah, I'm really proud of that. I'm really proud not only of what we did but the fact that no one had ever done it before. And I'm really proud of Sports Cafe because that type of television had never been made before, you know, back then. And, you know, the whole idea of... I mean, JK was probably the first sports person to become a TV star, you know. We, we did a lot of stuff. So, yeah, look, I have a pride of my, in my work but it's like anything i'm more excited about what i'm going to do next i just don't know what it is because you know i'm really proud the crowd goes wild i'm really proud of it and proud of the people that work on that show so it's just cool it's just i mean i've been very blessed i've been very blessed to have some great opportunities to be around something that i love which is sport and work with people that i just love working with and uh and and what a great gift yeah totally and i mean one of the other things I had to commend you for is like how often you like manage to keep a straight face because like you just look at Mark Ellis and it's just yeah it's more about Lee Hart more about Lee Hart than trying to keep or a straight Eric Rushmore or yeah I'm it's I mean I had the the opportunity to watch sort of some of the older flicks on YouTube and yeah ends it on screen but like, I do sort of wish that I'd sort of been able to appreciate it at its time because like unfortunately now I don't think the sort of antics that Mark and Lee got up to that we probably wouldn't be able to replicate it no. in today's uh, no. media environment but no. you touch on your work with Crowd Goes Wild so yep. what was the progression from Sports Cafe to Crowd Goes Wild and was it like an instant thing was it something you'd already dreamt up? No it's like oh, <laughs> don't give me that much credit um, I think the thing with um Sports Cafe came to a natural end where we just felt, yeah, look, we've done this and it's time to stop. You know, as a group, we just felt that. And so we finished that 2005. We came back in 2008 did another series for TVNZ, but that was basically because Macca had ran into the head of TV in, in a bar in Ponsonby and she said to him, why don't we bring Sports Cafe back? And he said, well, I'd do it, but Rick won't. So let's ring him. And they rang me. It was like 3.30 in the morning. And I was like, what? You know, and they said, oh, you know, we need to bring Sports Cafe. I'm like, yeah, yeah, cool, okay. Let's just let me go back to bed. So I obviously had committed to doing <laughs> 20 episodes. But in 2005, we finished Sports Cafe, and, and like, I, it was just the right thing to do. And then I got a call, just trying to remember when. It was, must have been, must have been in the middle of 2005. I'd had a call from John Follett, um, at Sky just saying, you know, that they had a news thing called Sport 365 and he said, can you turn that into something for me? And I had a look at it and I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And funnily enough, the day, the day he rang me, I said, look, I can't really talk. He said, why not? I said, oh, I'm just with Mark Ellis. He's going to court. He's got three policemen surrounding him. He's just grabbing a suit. So um, I, I couldn't talk in too much detail. But at the end of 2005, Sky asked me to come and do Crowd. Well, they asked me to come and they had, they had this show called Sport 365 and they wanted to add a bit of something to it. And so I got given sort of the body of 365 and I added a few people to it and um, and, and it grew and the crowd goes wild. And, you know, Sports Cafe was a lot of fun, and but we only had to do it once a week. So, you know, 
Crab as well, five nights a week. Man, what those guys do is absolutely incredible, you know, to get themselves up. You know, Andrew Mulligan, I think we're into the year 14. To do five nights a week, you know, 200 odd days a year, whatever it is. Man, that, that, is, that is something special. Again, Plus you know, the radio and um, yeah. the basketball that does as well, eh? Yeah, but just to be on and be able to perform at that level night after night for so long. And, uh, you know, I'd worked, we'd actually had Mark Richardson on as a guest host on Sports Cafe. So I knew him. He was one of the first people I sort of hired for crowd. And then when he left, it was pretty obvious that we were going to put McConey in that role because he's such a talent. You know, he's one of the, again, I've worked with some talented people, but he is right up there. You know, he's such a talent. And, you know, just hasn't looked back since he's been there. And, uh, you know, we had Hayley for a while and she was amazing. And then she went to breakfast and then we got Storm and Arno have joined us and, and Chris Key. And, you know, we've really, it's it's good. I, and I, I've been really proud of them in the lockdown because we've been doing two episodes a week. And uh, they've been as funny as any of the episodes we've ever done. I, I just genuinely sit down and watch them as a viewer. It's one of the advantages I have of crowd over sports cafe as I never got to watch sports cafe but I get to watch crowd and I love it yeah because yeah like I said crab as well was a staple of my childhood my yeah. dad was never uh oh I guess like by the time crowd goes well it came around it gave us an alternative to the uh 6:45 sports slot because whatever they talked about was going to get delivered in crowd goes well but in a more humorous yeah. way so uh one of my follow-up questions to that is who came up with Smashed Bro? Uh, Paul Moore, actually. So Paul Moore was our producer at the time. He's, he's now at TVNZ. And uh, he, 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 yeah, it was, that was his, it was his name. And he's a big county's rugby man. And uh, he's just like, yeah, Smashed Bro. And I was, it's like, great. And it's become a real staple. So, um, yeah, so, so that was his idea. Basically, nothing's my idea. <laughs> I just listen to everyone else. Oh, so, yeah, like you, well, for those who aren't aware, um, Rick obviously is an executive producer for Crowd Goes Wild, and that's been, that's obviously running up until this day, but then over that timeline, or up until this time, you also went about putting together a book and a TV series. Oh, that's right, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, talk us through that, please. So Play It Strange is an amazing uh, organisation led by Mike Chan, who sort of deserves to be like Sir Michael Chan. He's just an amazing man. And he was the bass player, original bass player of uh, Split Ends um, and, uh, you know, had a great music career himself. But he, he made it a mission to sort of, you know, to let musicians and songwriters in particular become treated like stars while they're at school. And so he's, he's led a case for songwriting to be an NCA subject and stuff. And he, he just gives so many amazing, talented school kids an opportunity to, to get recognised. And... Uh, and there was this loose idea for a book and we sort of thought, you know, it'd be really cool to talk to the publisher, Jeff Blackwell's a friend of mine and Jeff and I wanted to work on something together. And we, you know, Jeff and I sort of came up with this concept about, I know this to be true about what are the values that really you live your life by? What are the ones that your parents passed on? What are the, what, what's important to you? You know, um, where do you find peace, that sort of stuff. And we decided to do it for Mike and it was an amazing project and, and really, for me, again, it was a gift because I got to speak with 60 amazing New Zealanders about what's important to them, about what they know to be true. And uh, I came out of that project to change man. I learned so much 
from some amazing people. And uh, yeah, it's probably one of the reasons I ended up packing up and going to the US actually was, you know, I just sort of thought, you know, I mean, I could sit around the rest of my laurels or I can just keep going. So, you know, let's try and do something fresh. And so I went over to Austin, Texas. And you've st- you liked it well enough to actually stay over there. And then you ended up coaching a high school team. So what was yeah. the, I guess, like, is there work over there that you're doing or that you were doing uh, before this COVID-19? I just, yeah, I was there backwards and forwards a bit. I, I love Austin, Texas. It's, you know, if you haven't been, it's the place. It's uh it's a place where they treat musicians like we treat rugby stars, you know, and um, I, I just really, really enjoyed living there. But, like, you know, I was most of my work's back here, so I would go backwards and forwards. And then, you know, obviously now I'm back here because, you know, it's probably a little bit more relaxed here at the moment. So um, I don't know. I mean, looking forward in the future, I mean, none of us know what, you know, we don't, we probably know what the next couple of days are like and that's as far as you can plan, you know. We're in level four and we can plan for level four because we know what it's like and we sort of get a feeling for what level three will be like, but we've got to experience it before we can start working that out. And then we don't know when we're going to stop level three. So I'm just sitting here in the Coromandel working away on my laptop and I've done one million Zoom meetings, you know, coordinating things and, and you know, just... I suppose just having the time to let my imagination run free and uh, and work out where to next. You touch on the, I've seen across your Instagram pages and whatnot, your love for the the sports culture that they have over in Texas, particularly around yeah. football. So would you say that of those experiences that you've had, that they top any of the sporting experiences that you've had in relation to New Zealand? No, I wouldn't like to be comparative, but what I like is the tribalism. So, you know, Austin, Texas is where the University of Texas is based. You know, they get, I think, on average, like 93, 95,000 people to a home game, and the whole city wears burnt orange because that's the colour of the team, and I love that. But, you know, um, there's nothing quite like going to an all-black test for me. So, um, you know, when the all-blacks win or lose, you know, that's my week decided by the <laughs> result. It was a bit nicer having some of that pressure off for a while, but, um, you know, because you're a bit more removed in Austin, Texas, you know, and when we got beaten in the semi-final against England, you know, I was able to walk outside and no one in Austin knew. So that was great, you know. It's quite a healing place. But uh, And the way I ended up coaching there was that, you know, I was watching a World Cup game in a pub and uh, there were some Kiwis there and it sort of, got away from rugby a bit by going to Austin, but they sort of introduced me to someone and he introduced me to the coach and I next thing I'm helping coach a team. So uh, it was good. I really enjoyed it. Really great bunch of guys and I, I really enjoyed getting back into it. Is there a highlight for you of all the experiences that you've had in relation or I mean from a media perspective? Like is there a standout all blacks test for you or was there obviously you had that training, I mean that's oh, well, that was, well it might not be a highlight, but it's something that not everyone gets to experience. No, I suppose game-wise, the game that I enjoyed the most, you know, um, when I was working with the All Blacks was the semi-final in 95 when Jonah and co destroyed England. And then I remember when Zinni got his drop kick from about 45 metres out, I was sort of sitting on the bench with the, with the, with the reserves and stuff, and, uh, and it was just like hysterical laughter. It's like, this game is just ridiculous, and Zinni's just got a goal, drop goal from 45 metres out. That, that game in particular was one I really loved. I really loved being around 
that time. Um, and I was really lucky enough, you know, as someone put on uh, uh, Instagram, I think the All Blacks put on Instagram, where, 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 where were you when Jonah scored this try? Uh, again, when he ran over Mike Cat, and I'm like, I was about 10 metres away. <laughs> so what a gift that was, you know, that was amazing. But I think well, my two favourite, two of my favourite players really, obviously Michael Jones and J.K., and, 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 and watching them at their peak was amazing. You know, I hope he doesn't hear this, but, you know, being able to watch J.K. perform, um, you know, when you've got a really close mate doing something to his utmost, you, you're proud of him. You know, I'm sure we all have that opportunity to have someone that, that, that's a good mate that does something particularly special. And for me, the guy just happened to be an all-black winger. So I always really enjoyed that when he did something special, you know. Um, you know, I was there when he scored that try against Italy. And and I think, you know, I really enjoyed it when he scored the try in the World Cup final and stuff like that. So that, that was always cool for me. I, I just always liked sort of just, you know, not so much the moment, but just after it happened, being able to sit down and say, oh, that was pretty good, mate, and have a beer with him, you know, that was that was pretty cool. I like that. I'm very envious of your career. Like, um, well, I don't mean that in a mean way, but you've just had this wealth of experience. And I mean, you probably don't give yourself enough credit for going from soccer player to rugby player and then playing in the first of Dean. Um, but, yeah, like, is it for you, like, when you look back on your career, like, are you just, like, in awe of what's happened. I mean, you leave journalism school, like not knowing what you want to do. You, like you said, you get into a bit of trouble, and then you just like over the last, like you said, I think you said it was coming up to forty years. I watched that um, the American yeah. rugby wrap up that you're on, and you said you've been covering oh, right. rugby forty odd years. Like, is it just crazy for you to just look back and everything you've experienced? You know, like, have you ever seen the movie Forrest Gump? And and I feel a bit like him sometimes. There's like there's a great scene where Forrest Gump is just in the background of all these shots with famous people. <laughs> it's like it's a little bit like that. But um, I just think uh, just being lucky, eh? Just uh, lucky to have so much fun. I think is what I've really liked. Uh, um, you know, to be to be around some amazing people, to see them perform. To uh, yeah, it's just to be close to the action. It's just a gift, and I, I, I don't. I just, I don't, I'm just very fortunate, and very lucky. I think is is what I, um, what I appreciate, and uh, and long may it continue. Well, honestly, Rick, this has really been an absolute pleasure. By far, the most excited that I've been before um, recording a podcast. Like you said, uh, hopefully um, there's better days to come and you get a bit more time to go out and surf, hopefully uh, under level three of the lockdown. But um, above all, mate, stay safe and healthy. And yet again, thank you very much for taking the time out to talk to me. Thanks for listening, mate. I really appreciate it. No worries, Rick. Go well. All right. See you. Bye.